Great Britain is in the midst of a leadership crisis. The decline and fall of the always entertaining Boris Johnson has led to a stormy contest among Conservative Party politicians to replace him, and the Labour Party now has a chance to replace the Conservatives. It's complicated, as are the consequences of Brexit, the separate of Harry and Meghan, and their transformation into the Duke and Duchess of Hollywood. I find all these matters rather puzzling. So I'm doing what any sane person would do. I'm asking Niall Gardner to interpret. He's British, but he speaks fluent American. Niall is director of the Heritage Foundation's Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom. Earlier in his career, he was foreign policy researcher for former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, advising her on international policy and assisting with her fine book, Statescraft, Strategies for a Changing World. Niall is extraordinarily well-educated. He received a doctorate in history from Yale University. He also has two master's degrees from Yale and a master's degree and a bachelor's degree in modern history from Oxford University. He has lived in Europe, Africa, Asia, and North America. I'm Cliff May, and I'm eager to hear his thoughts on what's going on in Blighty. I expect you are too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. So good to have you, Niall. And, I've, you know, I've been reading various British commentators, uh, one of whom characterized the UK today as a great but troubled and flailing nation. Is that accurate? Uh, well, firstly, Cliff, uh, th- thanks very much for having me on the show uh, today. And, uh, you know, funnily enough, it's actually hotter in London than it is in Washington, which is quite rare, actually. So uh, so the British are literally baking in a heat wave at the moment. And, uh, uh, of course, Washington is always in a heat wave. So, um, and, uh, but it, it's really good to be here. And, and, of course, today is a, you know, uh, is a significant day in terms of the uh, you know, the Conservative Party uh, leadership conference, uh, sorry, uh, leadership race, actually. And and so we've had, uh, you know, some major developments today, and, and no doubt we'll be talking about that, uh, you know, um, a bit later. But, uh, you know, response to your, your question is, is Britain sort of, you know, flailing and, uh, you know, is Britain in some state of crisis, turmoil? Well, of course, Boris Johnson has, uh, you know, has resigned as prime minister. Um, he's still in Downing Street, though, and he will remain until a new prime minister comes in in uh, in September, um, although Boris is saying actually he might stay actually until October. So we'll see what happens. Um, but uh, you know, the, the UK as the world's you know fifth largest economy as a nuclear power, permanent member of the UN Security Council, uh, it's a uh, it's a very significant military force. Um, you know, the UK of course really really matters to the world. I mean, this this is a big power. It's not a superpower anymore. It was a superpower. Uh, in its heyday, uh, Great Britain was the you know the world's dominant force for several centuries before the United States took over. Uh, really, uh, I would say, you know, during World War II and the immediate aftermath of World War II, 
Um, so what happens in the UK really matters, I think, for um, not only for the British people, but also for, uh, you know, for the free world as well and, and for the United States. Um, I, I don't agree that the United States, sorry, the United Kingdom is in a state of, you know, sort of uh, turmoil. Um, there is certainly some political upheaval, of course, with the departure of, of Boris Johnson. Um, but, you know, I'm optimistic actually about the future of Britain because, you know, Great Britain is now in the Brexit era. It's thrown off the shackles of the European Union. It's a free sovereign nation. Um, you have a, a British government in place, actually, that uh, that I think has done a lot of good work on the Brexit front. It's been also negotiating, signing a, a whole wave of free trade deals across uh, across the world. Uh, it's seeking to do a deal with the United States. Um, Great Britain has shown tremendous leadership in confronting, you know, Russia over uh, over the Ukraine invasion. Uh, you know, Boris Johnson deserves a lot of credit uh, for that. Uh, you know, I, you know, I think I think Great Britain largely is doing okay, but you know, the new prime minister who comes in really has to address, you know, some some big, you know, fundamental issues. I mean, for example, the you know the soaring cost of living crisis. There, you have inflation approaching ten percent as it here is here in the United States, and that's a result largely, I think, of out of control government spending. And so we need to have a uh, you know prime minister coming in who is going to rein in government spending, who's going to reduce the role of the state, who's going to cut taxes, who's going to bring in a more uh, you know pro free market economic liberty approach. Because I think that's one of the failings actually of the Boris Johnson government has been uh, you know too much uh, focused on sort of big government solutions, and that was largely as a result of the pandemic. Uh, with uh, with huge amounts of government subsidies for people not not working basically, so you know, so I think they've got a reverse course on this front, and and so there are some big problems I think certainly with the with the Boris Johnson uh, government, and I think he's acknowledged that himself. Um, but in terms of the big picture future of Britain in the Brexit era, you know, I, I think the UK is going to do just fine, uh, and uh, and I think we're likely to have a prime minister in place who is going to be. You know, very serious about dealing with with some of the uh, some of the big problem economic problems the UK is is facing today. Well, as you say, we will we'll get to those candidates in a minute. But I want you, you just gave a, a a pretty good pitch for Boris Johnson and what he's done. He's a colorful character. He, uh, I have to say, uh, I met him once at the British Embassy here uh, at a dinner. Uh, very engaging. I had a I had a lot of hope for him. How would I mean, how would you describe why? Yeah, you know, he's made mistakes. He probably partied when he shouldn't have. And he had a, a deputy that he was too indulgent of who had some, what is Chris Pincher, which is a kind of an unfortunate name for somebody who's accused of harassment on a sexual level, I suppose. Um, but what, I guess, just what went wrong? Why did why why yeah. is he out? Why is he, in, I criticize low approval rating. We have plenty of, Leaders in the Western world, low approval rating, no, probably no lower than here. Why? Why is he out? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think there are many reasons for that. And uh, you know, I, I've met you know Boris Johnson on, on many occasions. I've hosted him here in Washington. Um, you know, Boris is a very, he's a very charismatic, you know, politician. He's a very likable guy. I mean, he's, um, you know, when you meet him in person, Cliff, as, as you know yourself, I mean, he's a very friendly, genuinely friendly, uh, you know, figure. Um, you know, he's a he's somebody who I, I think is a uh, you know a politician of tremendous character, really, uh, and uh, and that's both a positive and sometimes can contribute to your downfall as well. Um, you know, Boris was a great um, campaigner. 
He delivered Brexit against all the odds. He won a spectacular general election victory in 2019 with an 80 plus seat majority in the House of Commons. You know, the biggest win for the Conservatives since uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, the days of Margaret Thatcher and, uh, you know, the 1987 general election. So, you know, Boris Johnson um, was really in his element uh, when he was campaigning for, for Brexit or campaigning, uh, you know, to, um, you know, to deliver a big election when he wasn't really as as good on, in the day-to-day role as prime minister. In fact, I think he found, you know, the day job quite boring. He wasn't, uh, well, he isn't a man who enjoys reading lots of policy papers and and getting on top of the details of things. And so he's different to Margaret Thatcher, who used to, you know, stay up until 3 a.m. reading, you know, policy briefs. And she, you know, she knew the, uh, you know, the ins and outs of every single policy matter. I mean, Boris simply isn't like that at all. In fact, Boris, I think, is quite bored by the uh, minutiae of day-to-day policy detail. And also, clearly, he wasn't keeping a very close eye on the antics of some people who were working for him, including uh, one of his whips, as you mentioned, and, and also, um, you know, the Partygate scandal, uh, which basically involved a series of, you know, what one could describe, I suppose, as parties uh, held by Downing Street uh, staff during the draconian lockdown down era. Um, you know, the British people felt this was, uh, you know, tremendous hypocrisy on the part of the government, uh, you know, breaking the the very rules that were put in place by the Johnson government. And so I, I think that was the beginning of the end for Boris, actually, the Partygate scandal. Uh, and pub, the public turned uh, dramatically against him over that. And then you had, you know, some other, a series of other scandals as well. And, uh, but also ultimately, I, I think that Boris Johnson lost a lot of support on the right of the party because of the, the big government economic policies that were in place, you know, the high taxes, uh, you know, the, um, uh, the huge level of government spending, for example, you know, and so, this is not the sort of thing you'd expect from a conservative government. Uh, economic liberty in the UK has declined dramatically in the last couple of years. Uh, the UK was, you know, seventh place in the Heritage Index of Economic Freedom, uh, you know, just uh, a few years ago. Now it's, you know, placed at 24th in the world. So, uh, you know, uh, I think Boris Johnson lost support on, you know, from a lot of wings. You know, in my own case, actually, I, I, um, I was in favour of Boris remaining as Prime Minister because. I think removing the prime minister in what what is a sort of internal you know conservative party coup that can be dangerous, and you never know who's going to become the leader of the party. So it's a game of Russian roulette in a way. Um, and I, I'm a bit more reassured now about who will be the next leader, but we'll discuss that <laughs> further. Um, and uh, but uh, you know I have to say that uh, I don't think it's a good idea for the conservative party to remove uh, you know, their. You know, their leaders, that, that's something that should be decided, you know, really in a general election campaign. Um, and yeah, go, go ahead. Well, one criticism that I've heard is that he, he ran from the right, but then for some strange reason, governed much more from the left. Is, is that a fair criticism? Um, you know, mixed bag. I think on economic policy, I mean, I think the overall approach is very disappointing. And, you know, you have to say, was there a big difference between how the British government under Boris Johnson handled the economic uh, policy side, as opposed to say, you know, the left-wing government you have in the United States under Joe Biden. You know, actually, it's not much difference. You look at the environmental policies that the Conservative government have put in place; the whole net zero stuff. Is there a chance that he comes yeah. back, or is that impossible in Britain? I mean, we've had that happen in America. Um, Nixon and others who have left. In, in- you know. Very unlikely, I think. Um, I, I can't see that happening. Uh, there, there's a petition right now, actually, uh, for 
Boris Johnson to be placed on the uh, the uh, the leadership ballot for the final round of voting among Conservative Party members for the next prime minister. So there's a petition for Boris to return, and that's been signed by several thousand people. I, I don't I don't think that uh, realistically that's going to happen, uh, or that Boris Johnson really has any interest. I think in returning. Uh, you know, to stand for, for for prime minister, I mean, he's he's, you know, he's had a uh, a decent innings, I think, uh, as they say in cricket, and uh, you know, he's been PM for over two years. I mean, I, I think he's uh, you know he's done what he what he wanted to do with regard to uh, to Brexit. Uh, I, I don't see how Boris Johnson, you know, uh, in any way comes back. It's a new era for the Conservative Party. I, I don't think he has an interest anyway. You know, he'll he'll probably return to being a prolific writer for the. The Daily Telegraph, uh, doing a lot of TV stuff, giving some big speeches, um, you know, the usual stuff that uh, former prime ministers do. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think he'll enjoy life actually being a very outspoken former prime minister. And he'll probably have a lot of advice for the next prime minister. Uh, he'll be no shrinking violet, I think, when it comes to, uh, you know, expressing his views about, about the state of Britain post Boris. So I expect to see a lot of Boris Johnson on the British and international stage, including here in the United States. I'm sure he'll make some visits to America. Uh, and, his, and his background is journalistic, so he it'll be easier for him uh, to to write yeah. than uh, yeah. He, a lot Boris of is a journalist, a commentator. Um, you know, he used to be a columnist for the Daily Telegraph, hugely popular writer. You know, um, he'll be all over TV. I mean, Boris, <laughs> you know, you won't be able to keep him away from the airways. Uh, you know, so uh, he'll be everywhere, and you'll thoroughly enjoy it. I'm sure. Let, let's spend a, just a moment on Brexit and, and its consequences so far. And I'll just say this. And as an American, I kind of would have preferred for the UK to stay in the EU because I think it's a, the UK is a good influence over Germany and France uh, in particular. And leaving puts the, the, UK, the, uh, the European Union very much under the the thumb of, of, of Germany and France. From a British perspective, I absolutely understand Brexit and why you're in favor of it, because Britain, I'm a, I oppose the idea of nations surrendering sovereignty to transnational organizations. I have a problem with that, that concept. And, and that's what the, you know, the common market was not that, but the European Union became that. So tell me a little bit about, are, are people feeling, okay, we made a good choice, or is it mixed, or are people saying, oh, I don't know why we did this? Yeah, Cliff, I think, you know, Brexit may be one of the um, you know, the, the very few areas that we've, you know, uh, disagreed with and uh, uh, disagreed on. And uh, as as you know, Cliff, I'm a you know very staunch Brexiteer, uh, being a Brexiteer, you know, since um, Dale was born, probably. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so... Um, and, and Margaret Thatcher, my former boss, uh, would have mightily cheered Brexit. So, you know, um, I think Brexit, it's so fundamentally important for the reason that you outlined there, which is really sovereignty of self-determination. Above all else, you know, that that's really the the, the key, you know, thing about Brexit. And and, and certainly, you know, I'm not, I listen to a lot of American voices say that, you know, Britain outside of the European Union is not great for America. Well, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, this is a matter of, you know, British national interest. And clearly Britain, I think, is far better off outside the EU. But also, you know, within the European Union, I think Britain had very little uh, real influence, you know. And uh, and I think for America, you're far better off having 
you know, an independent sovereign Britain that's a more powerful force on the world stage outside of the European Union. Because you look at what the EU is doing on, on Ukraine, for example, completely useless. Uh, and and you look at the the big leaders within the European Union, Emmanuel Macron's you know busy uh, you know shining Putin's boots. He's run out of boot polish probably by now. Um, and uh, you know Olaf Scholz, I mean he's he's just uh, I mean he's nearly as bad as Macron on this. Not quite as bad, but what what have the Germans actually done to help Ukraine? Barely not. And so you know so the British have got out of useless EU and they've you know EU's in the rear view mirror. What do the British people think? Well you know. Of course, uh, 52% of the British people voted for, for Brexit. Um, and th- those 52%, I think, remain overwhelmingly committed to uh, the Brexit project. Uh, you probably have another, I would say, quarter of the population who who didn't vote for, for, for Brexit, but who have accepted the reality of Brexit. And you have a further, you know, maybe 20, you know, to 25%, something like that, who will never accept Brexit. Uh, you know, we call them, you know, the diehard remainers. Uh, and, you know, you'll see them on Twitter, uh, railing against Brexit every day. And, you know, and, uh, they're a bit like the sort of, you know, Japanese soldiers who continued fighting after the end of World War II. Some of them were found in, you know, the, the jungles in 1972 or something like, you know, that's basically what, what the, uh, the anti sort of Brexit lobby is like in prison. They're still going to be fighting this battle probably in 2050. Uh, you know, when, you know, when they're in their sort of 80s and 90s and, and maybe discovered living in a cave in, you know, uh, in, uh, uh, darkest Scotland or something like that. So, um, but they're still, they'll still be out there, uh, uh, Cliff. And, you know, Britain's never going to go back into the European Union, uh, unless the only scenario where that could potentially happen is if you had some kind of, you know, uh, I would say socialist Labour government forms a coalition with the Scottish nationalists and liberals and, uh, and then they, you know, they seek to overturn the democratic referendum vote. Very risky thing to do, but they'd have to have a big majority in parliament to be able to do that. And then, of course, you need to have the, you know, the European Union willing to accept Britain back in, which I don't think is a given either. Uh, and I think the French would oppose it uh, uh, strongly. And Macron would never, uh, you know, agree to that. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't see Britain returning to the European Union ever. But there are people out there in the UK, you know, who certainly dream of that and you know and to you know spend all their hours on twitter uh you know planning this all out and and uh so there certainly exists a lobby for that but i, I don't think they're going to prevail I, I would have liked to see i think you would have too in the in the immediate aftermath of brexit an anglo-american free trade deal um wh- am i wrong and and why didn't it happen whose fault is that yeah so actually you know the, the british government was very close to getting a uh, free trade deal um, with the United States in the, the latter part of the Trump presidency. And, and President Trump was very keen on getting it done, actually. Uh, and, uh, and so you had several nego- rounds of negotiations, about six or seven negotiating rounds in the US and the UK. There are some disagreements on some areas. Um, the issue of, you know, American chlorinated chicken, for example, was controversial. Uh, as though Americans are going to be dying from eating, you know, chlorinated chicken. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, a kind of ridiculous sort of fear was spread in some parts of the British media and so on about it. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, US chicken is perfectly safe to eat. I mean, I'm alive, you're still alive, Cliff, and I'm sure that, you know, hundreds of millions of Americans are still alive after eating, you know, chlorinated chicken. So we're doing just fine. Uh, and, uh, but you read the horror stories in the British press about that. I mean, it's a sort of, you know, uh, apocalypse now meets the walking dead kind of thing. So, um, you know, so you had a bit of fear mongering there, which slowed things down. There are other issues of disagreement as well. And so, 
Um, ultimately, they didn't get round to signing a free trade deal under, under Trump, very close to doing so. And then you had Joe Biden who came in, who, who really hasn't been a supporter of it, uh, dragging his feet. And Nancy Pelosi has been absolutely awful, you know, delivering all kinds of nuclear threats against Britain over the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, Nancy Pelosi is much tougher on Britain than she is on, on the Russians, for example, the Chinese. And she views Britain as, you know, Brexit Britain is probably the biggest enemy. Uh, and uh, so, um, but, you know, things are changing. And the midterm election is probably going to deliver a, a huge, you know, Republican victory. The GOP wants a deal with the UK uh, on on trade. And it's going to be a priority, I think, for the Republicans. And so Joe Biden's going to be uh, faced, I think, with a uh, request from Congress to, uh, to sign off on a US-UK trade agreement. So is he going to veto a deal with America's biggest friend and ally on the world stage? Risky stuff, I would have thought. So we'll have to see what happens. But I, I think we'll see a, a free trade deal either in the next couple of years or if there's a Republican president post 2024, it's going to be fast-tracked very quickly. All right. Very interesting. Let's let's move on to the candidates to succeed them. I know the race is tightening. Um and some of the most interesting personalities are now out of it, I understand. Nonetheless, I want to discuss them, well, in part because I want Americans to have heard these names because they will hear them again. The most interesting candidate to me was Kemi Batanaka. I hope I'm exp- pronouncing her name right. She, as I understand it, Kemi Batanaka summoned enthusiasm from a lot of the conservative party base. Um, she's a woman of color. She's Her parents came from Nigeria. She's an anti-woke warrior. She's a critic of critical race theory. She's a social conservative. She doesn't even like gender-neutral bathrooms. Yeah. Um, have I described her adequately? Do you, yeah. Are yeah, you at I, all I, I enthusiastic? Think, yeah. So so you're referring there to, I think it's pronounced Kemi uh, Badenoch. But um, right. Uh, yeah, uh, but yeah, Kemi is. Um, and the last name is not is not Nigerian. I should say she has a, no. a British husband who's what, yeah. in Scotland or I don't remember. Right? Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure uh, where exactly. And of course, you know, I mean, Kemi, who, who came over to the UK as the you know the daughter of uh, immigrants from Nigeria, and then then spent a few years, I think, growing up in Nigeria. A little um, bit, yeah, and the US and she, too. I think she spent some time, yeah. Yeah, but she she identifies herself as quintessentially British, uh, and uh, you know she is a, in my view, a tremendous conservative, uh, you know, uh, British patriot, uh, and uh, she um, she fought a fantastic campaign. Um, she was the, uh, as you pointed out, she was the Equalities Minister during her tenure as as uh, minister. She actually banned critical race theory from British schools. A uh, very bold move, and she came under a huge fire from the what I call the you know the left wing race hate lobby. And they they target any uh, you know uh, you know black or Asian uh, you know conservative politicians uh, with with a nastiness and viciousness that is absolutely horrible to to see. And she she stood up to the you know to the uh, uh, to the vicious far left here. Um, and, uh, you know, she, um, you know, Kemi is a very brave lady, a courageous, uh, and she's a real true conservative. And she ran a campaign as a true conservative. Uh, she didn't make it to the final, you know, rounds, but, uh, many see her as a future prime minister. Um, I'm in no doubt that she'll be a, uh, key cabinet figure in the next British, uh, administration. Uh, she previously served as a junior minister. Uh, but I think she'll be a full cabinet minister at a very high level. I mean, I, I don't know what position might be, but it could be something like education secretary potentially or or something, uh, you know, even, even higher, actually. So 
Um, and uh, but you know, she's someone I admire a lot, uh, and she's somebody who absolutely loves what Britain stands for. Um, and she, you know, she's a great, uh, I think, uh, rising star for Britain's Conservative Party. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've seen some quotes from her that are really quite remarkable. Wish we had her here. Uh, she told the Times of London that identity politics is not about tolerance yeah. or individual values, but exactly. the very opposite of our crucial and enduring British values. She sounded like Ross Perot at times. She said, as an engineer, which she's trained at, um, I know how to strip things down and get them to work. You can only deliver lower taxes if you stop pretending that the state continues to do everything for your country. And in terms of the colonial history of Britain, she's argued that, yeah, there were terrible things that happened during the British Empire. There were other good things that happened, and we need to tell both sides of the story. I hope she, I'd love to see her on a speaking tour here in the in the U.S. Yeah, she, she, she'd be great. And yeah, Cliff, also, I'm glad you mentioned the issue of the British Empire because, you know. Um, the British Empire actually still matters I mean, to a lot of British people, and especially to all the older generation. Um, and it still figures actually in you know uh, Britain's imperial past. Still figures in uh, you know political debates in the UK and the Conservative Party leadership contest. Um, and it's significant that uh, you know Kemi Badenoch, also Suella Braverman, um, who uh, asserted the Attorney uh, General. Who also ran a, a very very conservative campaign, uh, Suella, um, who also comes from you know what, what is referred to in the UK as an ethnic minority background. Um, Suella is a big defender of the British Empire, and she said the British people should be proud of of their imperial past. You know, and uh, you know there are a great deal of conservative party voters who would overwhelmingly agree with that sentiment, uh, and. Um, uh, and the British Empire, you know, featured actually in this, uh, you know, this uh, conservative leadership campaign uh, among uh, candidates who who are the children of immigrants in the United Kingdom, who stoutly defend, uh, you know, British history and who defend the, you know, a lot of the positive things from, you know, from the Britain's history with its empire. And and so that, that was a striking uh, uh, factor. And also, you know, uh, it is very significant that a lot of the most conservative figures within the Conservative Party are um you know are um individuals who have uh, you know whose parents have come to the UK as as immigrants actually and they have basically um grown up uh, cherishing the the british dream and so the right of the party includes uh, i would say uh, you know many who who come from um you know non traditional you know uh, sort of backgrounds for the Conservative Party. So the Conservative Party today is very different to what it was, you know, uh, 30, 40 years ago, actually, um, in terms of what it looks like. Uh, and uh, and I think that the it is striking that many of the most Thatcherite people in the Conservative Party are actually uh, the uh, the sons and daughters of, of immigrants who came to the United Kingdom seeking a better, you know, better future for their children. Right, right, right. I, um, I listen, she's been in, in Nigeria. She knows the problems that Nigeria yeah. has and the deficiencies. I've spent a lot of time in Nigeria um, years ago as a reporter. An odd place because a, a lot of the people are really engaging and smart, but the country itself is, a, is just is a t- terrible, terrible mess. Um, and all kinds of reasons why that might be the case. She One of the things she said is that prior to colonization, and in Africa, she's talking about 
there was never any concept of rights. Mm. So the people who lost out were the old elites, not everyday people. Um, again, she she obviously knows something about Africa. And yeah. She's not simply um, saying it's all the fault and legacy of colonialism. She knows that's not the case. Which, yeah, and, exactly. And, yeah. Yeah. All right. Who who else should we talk about? Tom Tegenhat. Am I pronouncing that one correctly? Uh, What's his name? Tegenhat. Yes. I read this stuff. I don't hear very much. What's <laughs> it? What, tell, tell us quickly what what his story is. Or yeah. So so Tom Tegenhat. He's the chairman of the House of Foreign uh, sorry House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, he, he's a friend of mine. I know Tom uh, well. Um, he's a veteran of uh, Afghanistan. I think of Iraq as well. Um, with a military background, uh, background tremendous service. So he was a, a, a candidate who uh, who was knocked out in one of the earlier rounds. Uh, although he made, you know, the last, um, you know, uh, the last, uh, uh, I would say, uh, you know, five or six uh, candidates actually. So he did he did very well. You know, Tom is is somebody who um, is very robust uh, on uh, Russia and China policy. He's been a leading critic of you know the Chinese communist regime and an ad- advocate for a tougher stronger us uh, sorry uk stance against uh, against china um and so uh you know he he's somebody who as well i think has a bright future in the conservative party will no doubt one day the future be you know actually defense secretary or something like that um and um but uh, you know i mean tom also was somebody who um uh, you know, back in the old days, was was a Remainer. He was not a he was not a Brexiteer. He's now, you know, he's now a Brexit supporter. But he didn't start off that way. But um, so he, you know, he's from a wing of the Conservative Party that perhaps is, you know, is different to that of you know the Boris Johnson wing of the Conservative Party. Um, and uh, but you know, he he ran a, uh, you know, I think a you know a very good honourable campaign uh, which emphasised his credentials on foreign policy. And foreign policy, you know, really matters to the British Conservative Party, especially with the war in Ukraine uh, at the moment and the Russian invasion. Uh, so, you know, so, so Tom is another another rising star to look out for for the, you know, for the future. And he's he's a, he's a very good man. All right, let's let's move on to uh, Penny Mordaunt. Now, I, I actually know her a bit yeah. from my days many years ago in the political salt mines. She was she was in Washington on a visit, actually an exchange. I think to study the Republican Party and kind of understand yeah. it, she's yes. very likable. Um, though I, you know, I've been reading what British commentators say about her. One called her the very archetype of the woke HR administrator. That's those are pretty damning words. Yeah. So, so Penny, Penny Mordaunt is a um, she's a trade minister. She's not the the you know the Secretary of State for International Trade. Uh, that's Amory Trevelyan, but she is the number two. Uh, handling you know, trade deals uh, with the rest of the world, and she's done actually very well. I mean, Penny, I mean, I've I've had the chance to do some work with her. Um, I also, um, you know, uh, uh, spoke to Penny at, at the headquarters of Vote Leave on referendum night as all the results came in uh, for the Brexit referendum back in 2016. I mean, she, you know, she was a she was a true Brexiteer from a very early stage, um, and, and there's a lot to be said for that, uh, and. Uh, you know, so Penny's done a great job as trade minister. She came under heavy fire during uh, the campaign um, over, you know, some some comments she made on on some cultural issues, and that was certainly, I think, uh, an issue that the culture war stuff certainly undermined her 
during the the campaign uh, and uh, she was at one stage the front uh, you know i would say the along with rishi sunak the former chancellor uh, penny was the uh, the front runner for the uh, for the leadership campaign uh, she got um, edged out of course by liz truss in the latest round of voting uh, to place uh, earlier today um yeah. Yeah. So I was going to say so that brings us uh, to Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. Let's start with Liz Truss, the foreign secretary. I know, uh, I think I met her once at Heritage with you at a, at a luncheon. Yeah. Um, I know you like yeah. her. You've written that she grasps the big picture. Uh, tell us a little bit about Liz. Yeah. So I, mean, I know I know Liz fairly well. Um, we've hosted her at Heritage a couple of times. Uh, and, uh, you know, she is somebody who, uh, well, she, of course, is now the Foreign Secretary, where she's served in many cabinet roles, um, including, of course, Environment Secretary previously. And I think, Cliff, you joined us for a lunch when she was Environment Secretary, and we had a discussion um, actually before the Brexit referendum, and she was actually on, you know, she was not on the Brexit side at that time. She has since become a very, very strong, um, devout Brexiteer. And, um, you know, I've done a lot of work with... uh, you know, with uh, Liz Truss's team uh, as uh, as foreign secretary, and she's surrounded by very good people. Um, she's been, I think, an outstanding foreign secretary. Uh, she stood up to the likes of Vladimir Putin uh, over Ukraine. Um, in fact, the Russians really hate her, which is always a good sign. Um, and the Russians hate anyone who stands up to them, basically. And Liz Truss has been very strong standing up to Putin, and that's 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 great to see. Uh, so you know, I'm not, I do I do admire her work as foreign secretary. I think I think she's been great. She's probably the best foreign secretary we've had in many decades, actually, in the United Kingdom. Um, and uh, you know, she she's a tough, you know, she's a tough, uh, you know, principled uh, conservative. She's gone as she, as she says herself, you know, on a political journey. She started off as a liberal Democrat. Uh, her parents were liberal Democrat activists. Um, you know, she attended a uh, you know a, a humble. Uh, you know, comprehensive school in in the UK. She doesn't come from a elite private school background, as as a lot of others do in the Conservative Party. She then went on went on to, uh, to Oxford University, um, and um, you know, I mean, her background in a sense. I mean, I you know, not that dissimilar from my own. I mean, I went to a comprehensive school. I then went on to University of Ox- Oxford, uh, and uh, uh, you know, so I had a similar kind of you know background. Although, I mean, I was, you know, I have to say. Unlike Liz Truss, I mean, I was a, you know, a very active conservative from a very young age. I was in the Young Conservatives, and uh, and um, so you know, we have a different background in that respect. But you know, Liz comes from a, a typical sort of you know British background. She does not come from the upper classes or from the you know from the elites or anything like that. She's done very well for herself. Uh, she has uh, become a very Thatcherite Brexiteer. Her instincts are very pro-free market. She's in favour of low taxes. You know, limited government reigning in the role of the state, reducing government spending, all good stuff. You know, so I, I, I think she would make a very good prime minister. Um, she's not sort of she's not the kind of very outgoing, hugely sort of uh, lively, you know, character like Boris Johnson. She's a different sort of character to Boris, uh, but uh, you know, she's she's more disciplined, um, and uh, she. Um, she, I think, uh, you know, has a very good understanding of the policy briefs and issues. Uh, I think she'll make a good prime minister, but she's not going to be sort of, you know, kind of very uh, extremely flashy PM who's, 
you know, who's going to be, um, uh, I, I think, uh, the kind of Boris Johnson mold of, you know, prime minister, very, very different in style. Uh, but, but I think, you know, what's most important to me for the next prime minister is to have somebody who's actually a sound person ideologically, someone who, uh, you know, believes in conservative principles and someone who's going to really defend Brexit. And I think she'll do that. Uh, she's also a big supporter of the US-UK special relationship. Uh, and, and I think she'll stand up to Joe Biden, actually. You know, Biden's been terrible on, on British issues. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think unlike Boris Johnson, I think she needs to be a lot tougher. So that brings us perhaps to the last in our list, uh, Rishi Sunak, who I've seen described as the front runner at this point. Yeah. I think that's correct. Yeah. Well, I mean, he, he's only the, he's the front runner among MPs. So he won the biggest number of votes among uh, members of parliament. Uh, and then Liz Trust was second place, and Liz, uh, you know, defeated ultimately Penny Mordaunt. Uh, but what what happens now is that the the final round of voting takes place among Conservative Party members. There are about two hundred thousand of them. Um, you know, this is the grassroots of the Conservative Party. I, I used to be part of the grassroots when I was a you know young Conservative. Uh, and I was a young conservative chairman, and I know uh, the grassroots very well, how they work and how they think. The grassroots of the party are on the right of the party. A lot of the MPs in the Conservative Party are, are not on the right. Uh, you know, perhaps a, I would say a you know small majority are, but but there are many who are not. Rishi Sunak drew drew his support overwhelmingly from I would say from the centre and the left of the Conservative Party. There there are a few. On the right, who backed uh, Sunak, including some very, very robust factualists like Liam Fox, for example. You know, and I respect that. You know, it's right, that, that decision. But, uh, but in my view, uh, you know, Rishi, um, firstly, uh, you know, he has drawn his support from MPs who are, who are not really instinctively, I would say, Thatcherite conservatives. Secondly, uh, and and the opinion polls show this. Um, the vast majority of grassroots Conservative Party members are Thatcherites. They're on the right wing of the Conservative Party. They're not on the left. Um, they are low-tax, limited government people. They don't like big spending by by the government. They don't like the kind of you know lefty environmental agenda that the Boris Johnson government. They don't have much time for all of this environmental stuff. Uh, Rishi is a big, big green environmentalist. Uh, he's a big government guy. He's a high tax to spend guy. And, you know, Rishan, no doubt, is, a, you know, he's a very nice person. He's a likable uh, man. Uh, and, you know, and I think an extremely decent man as well. Um, but, you know, I, his ideology, his political instincts are on the left. And that's not where the Conservative Party membership is. And the latest polling shows among Conservative Party members that Liz Truss beats Rishi Sunak by around 20 percentage points. And so, you know, I, Rishi's in for a real thrashing here unless he turns things around, which I don't think he's going to do because the, the grassroots of the party, they're not, they're not in the Rishi kind of camp. I mean, Rishi, Rishi's career has been spent with McKinsey and Co., Goldman Sachs. You know, he's the quintessential kind of corporate management consultant kind of guy. And, you know, the, these local conservative activists, that's not their, not their cup of tea, right? I mean, you know, they're not into that kind of corporate sort of thinking. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Yes, correct. Yeah, yeah. So his his wife is extremely wealthy. You know, I think uh, you know her family is worth you know hundreds of millions of pounds, and, you know, something like that. And so he, you know, he Rishi comes from a well, certainly his family right now. Um, you know, his own his own sort of background you know, comes from a very very narrow elite, the one percent within the UK. Now, this is not you know. A, a policy issue in the election, but you know, at a time when inflation is running at ten percent, there are soaring prices. A lot of people are suffering economically in the UK, as they are in America. And um, you know, I think that uh, you know, for some for some voters, it's an issue if you have a candidate who seems to be so out of touch. You know, who lives a kind of almost billionaire lifestyle, actually. Uh, and while a lot of people are, you know, living in very dire circumstances, you know, it doesn't help. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, with, um, you know, with this, this election, it's going to be in the background. Uh, you know, Liz Trust doesn't have that baggage. You know, Liz comes from a far more humble background. Uh, and, uh, you know, Rishi actually, um, you know, made a, a sort of comment attack on on Liz Truss in, in one of the last debates. Actually, talking about uh, it's quite a personal attack on her. She responded saying, "You know, she went to a you know comprehensive school. She didn't have the privileges of you know Rishi Sunak went to uh, Winchester College, which is one of the most expensive uh, high schools in the United Kingdom. It probably costs thirty thousand pounds a year to go there. Uh, maybe thirty five, forty thousand dollars a year." Um, and, uh, you know, Winchester is a really, really elite school like Eton, where, you know, where many of the royals have gone. And, uh, you know, um, Liz, Liz Truss comes from a very different background and, uh, she doesn't have the kind of wealth that Rishi has right now. And, you know, I mean, I think that kind of thing, it matters for some, for some voters. Uh, and, uh, it, uh, you know, Rishi can appear to be, a bit out of touch with the kind of luxurious, uh, you know, uh, sort of status that uh, he and his family have. Give us quickly um, an idea of how the Labour Party is viewing this and what they see as their opportunities uh, as coming out of this. Yeah, I mean, so so the Labour Party, of course, sense you know blood in the water. I mean, they're like a you know pack of sharks, you know. Uh, they, they've, they've seen, you know, Boris Johnson jumping ship and now, you know, they're, they're looking for the survivors and lifeboats kind of thing. Right? So, you know, it's, um, you know, it's great white, whites off the coast of, you know, Massachusetts right now, isn't it? Um, and, uh, so, um, you know, uh, so the, the Labour Party, you know, they think they see this as an opportunity. And, you know, if you look at the polling, actually, I mean, they've got a case because, the Labour Party has a big lead in the polls, 10, 15%. If a general election was held today, um, they would sweep into power, probably in, in coalition with the uh, the Liberal Party and the Scottish Nationalists. Um, and it would be a far left government, actually. I mean, this Labour Party, they may try and present themselves as sort of moderates when they're not. I mean, you know, it's like the Biden presidency is very left wing. Uh, and the Labour Party is, is just as left wing as the Bidenistas, if not even more so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Corbyn was basically a sort of communist Marxist, right? I mean, now the Labour Party is in the grip of, you know, far left socialists. Uh, so they would call themselves, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they wouldn't say, yeah, they wouldn't call themselves, you know, uh, you know, Marxists or anything like that, but there are plenty of Marxists running around in the Labour Party, that's, that's for sure, uh, with or without Jeremy Corbyn. So, you know, right now, Labour's in a strong position, but I think when you have a new prime minister who comes in, which is almost certainly going to be Liz Truss if the polling is correct. If Liz comes in, I mean, I, I think she'll eat into their league quite quickly. And the next general election doesn't have to be held till, you know, the end of 2024. Um, that's a long time. Uh, the Conservatives can work on rebuilding their vote. Uh, and, you know, I think that uh, the next election will be a very tight race. Uh, and Liz Truss, I think, you know, if she becomes prime minister, will be a uh, an effective PM who is going to be a strong adversary for the Labour Party. All right. And a few more subjects. One is um, Ukraine. You mentioned it before. Yeah. Um, whatever happens, Britain has been very forward leaning and very good on Ukraine, I would say, as, as you say, at a time when initially Germany seemed like it was going to make a big change from Angela Merkel time. But as you say, uh, Olaf Schultz, he's been backtracking and I'm, I'm concerned about fatigue, very fast fatigue. And, and p- part of the reason I'm concerned is I, a lot of the people who are getting fatigued when it comes to Ukraine seem to think, you know what, it's too bad, but if we let Ukraine go, at least it's all over. And I don't think it is all over. My understanding of Putin is if he wins this battle, he will move on to other battles and he will be yeah. strengthened to do that. Yeah. And I don't exactly. think I a lot of Europeans, a lot of Americans understand what he, what, the enterprise that he is, that he is up to. And he's in, and this enterprise he is doing in, in partnership with Xi Jinping in China. They have yeah, exactly. an agreement they've yeah. signed, even though Russia is the junior partner. But if he wins, yeah. he'll be a he'll be a stronger partner to Xi Jinping yeah. and yeah. the the Islamic Republic of Iran and Venezuela yeah. and North Korea and yeah. Cuba. And I and I just think people think, oh no, if we just let if we just appease, if we just let yeah. Putin have his Sudetenland, it'll all be over, and it will not be. Yeah, exactly. Phil. You, you've, you've outlined things extremely well there. And what's at stake with Ukraine is incredibly important. Uh, and, you know, if we allow the Russians to win, they will move on to the next targets, which would be the Baltic states and Poland. And who knows where they're going to stop. And, and the Russians are forming, you know, this, uh, uh, this, uh, axis of, of whatever one calls it, sheer evil with, with Iran, China, the North Koreans, Venezuelans, you know, you name it, every odious dictator on earth is, you know, banding together at the moment, aren't they? And, uh, and so, um, the stakes are, are incredibly high. You know, I, I you know, I'm always concerned about the, the certain fatigue that, uh, you know, that is coming into play in, in Washington. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you, you can see that, um, certainly, uh, moving in, but, you know, we have a, a vested interest in, in supporting Ukraine, the best way the United States can do this is actually by, in a couple of ways. I mean, firstly, by, you know, the strong military support is, is vital, you know, sending the, the arms equipment to Ukraine. And that, that's where the United States really, I think, has, you know, the, the big sort of edge here. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the soft power stuff in terms of helping, you know, Ukrainian reconstruction. So I think the Europeans should be doing a lot more on that front, you know, and uh, they, they've got to, the Germans should be doing a lot more. EU should be doing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know, if, if they're not going to help militarily, then they got to they got to do the other stuff. And so, you know, I mean, U.S. taxpayers, uh, you know, time of roaring inflation, massive, you know, thirty trillion dollar debt and so on. 
you know, I mean, they, you know, they, they want they want to help the Ukrainian people and they want to help them win. The best way to do that is is the military stuff. But that's how the Europeans set up the plate and actually stumping up some money. Uh, and uh, especially the Germans, uh, you know, they got it. They got to They really got to play their part here. Uh, and and uh, you know, so um, the, the United States um, can do all they can militarily, and also the U.S. has to really shore up. I think the NATO alliance as well, prepare NATO for what may come next if if the Russians dare to attack the NATO alliance. The strongest message to send to the Russians is: Look, you know, we, we will we will defend our territory, we'll fight you, we'll defeat you, and then the Russians are likely to back off if they sense weakness. They're they're gonna you know the Russians are gonna make a move, aren't they? And so. The U.S. role here is critically, critically important. This is the old saying. I've said this before. Yeah. I'll repeat it because I think it's useful yeah. to remember. Putin understands that when you're probing with your bayonet, if yeah. you feel steel, you back up. If you feel mush, yeah. you move forward. And that's yeah. what he's yeah. looking for. I, in that regard, one thing that's optimistic, I think some people disagree with me. I'm, my guess is you don't. NATO, Finland and Sweden coming into NATO is yeah. a good thing because Great. they're not there simply to ride the wagon. They yeah, actually exactly. they bring something, especially to their friends in the, you mentioned yeah. the, the, uh, the Baltics. Talking about Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania in particular, which I know Putin would love to just swap, you know, yeah. have as hors d'oeuvres when he's finished, yeah. or, you know, or dessert or whatever you want to call it after his meal of uh, of Ukraine. He, not that yes. he would stop yeah. there either. Yeah, 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 yeah. Precise, precisely. Sweden, uh, sorry, Sweden, Finland, joining the NATO alliance. That's a great development, and it's in the U.S. national interest. These are not freeloaders like some countries in Western Europe. Uh, you know, th- these are the fighting nations. They've got real militaries. They spend what's required on defense. They know to fight. They're right close to the Russian border. They're good allies. And they're, they're going to take some of the burden off the United States. You know, So it's it's a win-win for the U.S., actually. Yeah, very important. All right. Uh, but in respect for your time, a last subject that I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on, and that is Harry and Meghan. Harry oh, and yes. Meghan. Yeah. Which is actually, in, in many ways, one of the most interesting sort of issues of the day, actually. So I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that. <laughs> I mean, I can just let you take off, but I watched him at the UN where he's complaining. He's complaining that America, here in America, in, in where he lives in in, in Montecito, I guess it is, and, and where he's partying in Hollywood, it's just terrible. Got, on the one hand, look at this. What a world. Russia is slaughtering um, the uh, the Ukrainians. And as he kind of implied, just as bad, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court is saying that um, it'll be up to the states to to vote and make decisions on wh- what restrictions there should or should not be on abortion. That's what they're, they're because yeah. there is no such. Con- and he is saying that's the stripping of a of a constitutional right. And I just wonder if Harry has read the U.S. Constitution. To- Probably not, Cliff. I mean, he may not even know what's uh, what's actually in it at all. I suspect that's the case, uh, Cliff. So, uh, and uh, I was uh, watching Prince Harry's. You know UN speech, um, and and I I thought you know, judging by the uh, the extremely uh, sort of grim face that he had and how uncomfortable he was there, this looked like a Meghan Markle hostage video to me. And uh, you know, <laughs> I think really Prince Harry needs the SAS to come in and rescue him because at the moment uh, he he looks like a sort of prisoner of war. Uh, and, uh, you know, this speech, I'm sure that it's the first time that actually when he was reading out the speech, it's the first time actually Harry had actually 
seen the words on paper because uh, it clearly wasn't written by Harry or by Harry's own advisors. This is written all by, you know, uh, Meghan Markle's sort of political media spin machine uh, and all the woke stuff and all the stuff about, oh, you know, the Supreme Court decision being attack on, you know, freedom and democracy across the world. I mean, some of the most ridiculous statements I, I've ever seen in the United Nations, and that actually takes, you know, takes a lot of doing. Um, and he also compared the, uh, you know, the recent Roe versus Wade decision by the Supreme Court with the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. I mean, you know, really, he's comparing, you know, the, the Supreme Court to Vladimir Putin. It's just staggering in the stupidity and the ignorance here. And clearly, he's not even thinking about what he's saying. Uh, and uh, and he looks as though he's being, you know, sort of walking the plank on some pirate ship or something and uh, giving his last words. Uh, and uh, I, I just thought that it was just outrageous. And I didn't know if Prince Harry understands the damage he's doing to his own reputation in America, the damage he's doing to the royal family, who are hugely popular in America. But you look at the backlash on Twitter and elsewhere against Prince Harry, you know, he's doing some serious harm here. And, you know, does he really want to harm his own family and everything? I don't think so. But he's doing this because his wife is ordering him clearly to do it. Uh, and, uh, you know, clearly uh, Prince Harry doesn't strike me as a free-thinking man anymore. He's become a sort of woke prisoner. Uh, he's, the, he's the new woke prisoner of Zendel or something like that. And uh, you know, clearly he needs to be rescued from, from this woke nightmare. But... Uh, uh, Megan, obviously, the Duchess of Sussex. She has, I guess, she has a very powerful personality that she's able to yeah, I, I, I twist think the so. prince around her finger like that. Uh, yeah, it certainly looks like that. And and uh, you know, uh, Megan, you know, Megan Markle. I have to say, I mean, she is really she's pursuing what can only be described as a very, very hyper political, you know, far left wing agenda. She clearly hates the royal family and the British monarchy. She has no time for the British people, uh, and. Um, she has no sense of public service, anything like that. This is all about her own personal agenda. And it's disappointing to see Harry going along with all this because he used to be a free-thinking person, but, but clearly at the moment there's not an ounce of uh, free you know, thought in his mind at all. Uh, and he's just sort of reciting the, the talking points of Meghan Markle's you know, spin doctors, basically. This must be disturbing to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, who, as you say, is very popular in the U.S. and for very good reason. I mean, she... She she has worked so hard for so long with such dignity. I I think a lot of a, a lot of Americans do have great respect for her. Um, yes, and this is hard for her. And I guess when a vet and again you know long live the Queen when she passes. I guess Prince and this will be my final subject for you unless there's anything else you want to bring up. But Prince Charles gets uh, gets his chance for a few years. I guess, huh? Yes, I mean Prince Charles will be um, automatically the. Uh, the king uh, when the queen passes away and and i hope that you know the queen the age of 96 i hope she has many more years I and mean, her her mother the queen mother actually lived i think to well over 100 so um you know i think i think the queen will still be with us for some time which would be uh, absolutely uh you know fantastic for the british people to to be able to continue uh with her leadership in place for as far as you know uh, as possible uh, but Prince Charles will ev- eventually become king. Um, I don't think he has the, the you know, the, the popularity or the gravitas of, of the Queen. But I think the British public will, you know, will broadly accept his his role as the monarch. And and uh, 
uh, you know, Prince Charles is perhaps less unpopular than he was, you know, um, 20 years ago. Uh, so in the aftermath of the death of Princess Diana, Prince Charles was was quite unpopular, as, as was, of course, Camilla. But I think the British public have, have sort of warmed up a bit to both Charles and Camilla, uh, have accepted the reality of the next king being Prince Charles. Um, I think Prince William will succeed Prince Charles will be a fantastic uh, king. Uh, Prince William is hugely popular. Um, and then you have young Prince George who will eventually succeed Prince William. So I think the monarchy is in very safe hands. Um, and, you know, I think that, um, you know, the monarchy is going to be around for a very, very, very long time. It's not going anywhere. Uh, and uh, But I, I do hope that Prince Charles, when he becomes king, abstains from political interventions because he does that now as a prince. Is he doing that less? Has he become more moderate over the recent um, years in terms he, of not pushing his kind of, as you say, fashionably left opinions? He, he still, uh, you know, does intervene. He intervened over the, the British government's immigration policies recently, which uh, he came under very heavy fire for doing this. But he basically condemned the British government's policy of sending legal, legal migrants to uh, to Rwanda, which is the um, the new policy of the British government. Controversial, quite effective, I believe. Um, and um, Prince Charles didn't like it. He spoke out against it. Well, But he also said that as king, he wouldn't make these interventions. So I, I hope he's going to stick to that. Now, Gardner, I've learned a lot. Um, wonderful and, and enjoyable, edifying, entertaining to talk to you and uh, hope to do it again very soon. It's my pleasure, Cliff. Th- thank you very much for this interview. Thank you for all the great work that you do and the Foundation of Defense of Democracies uh, does as well. So, so th- thank, thank you, Cliff, for your leadership. Thank you. And thanks to all of you who have been with us for this entire conversation. Glad to have you here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at FDD. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.